Hi, everyone. Eric here. Very quickly before we get to our discussion today with Wadamaya and Matiendie, I want to make sure that you know about our China-Africa email newsletter that Kobus and I prepare every day. This newsletter is the most comprehensive digest of everything that's going on in the very fast-moving China-Africa space. Everything from the crisis in Guangzhou to what's going on with debt relief, and of course, how COVID-19 is now transforming China's relationship with Africa. To find out more, head over to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Try it out free for two weeks, see if you like it, and if you're a student or a teacher, well, it's half price. Once again, that's chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we are at an, such a fascinating time in the China-Africa story. Uh, it really feels like there's this chasm that is opening up. We, we called it a couple of weeks ago, well, I called it, but I, I think you also supported it, this rupture and this idea that there's been a, a strain on it. And one of the things that's evolved in the past four or five weeks that started to emerge in, in the narrative of what we've been seeing come out of what happened in Guangzhou is this divergence in terms of China's state-to-state relationship in Africa and the civil society relationship. And in that civil society relationship, boy, it is really starting to change in, in rather profound ways. Just this week on Monday, uh, there was a hashtag introduced called Black China. And what it was was people for a day switched their profile pictures and to put a black Chinese flag and then people articulated all across African Twitter uh, their expressions of frustration and anxiety and all of the different emotions that they're feeling about uh, both the continent's relationship with China, but also their countries. Let me read a couple of these for you so you can get a flavor of what people were saying. Kenyan Dennis Kipolimo, he wrote, uh, we expect the kind of hospitality we give to Chinese here in Africa to be reciprocated in their home country. Respect should be a two-way traffic, but the situation in China is different. In support of Africans in China, let's change our profile pictures to this flag for 24 hours. Uh, and, and again, that was very interesting. The key word there, Kobus, is respect, and something that we're going to bring up again and again. Um, also, let's go back to Kenya as well. Kenyan Peter Karaoke, he wrote, Our government needs to come up with a plan of saving our own Africans who are really suffering in China. We are human beings too, and God loves us more. Let Africans be treated well in China. We can't keep soothing them just because we owe them. Let's speak out, hashtag Black China. And it's interesting, Kobus, because there has not been a response on the Chinese side to this expression of anger and frustration and all the social videos that people are seeing about civil society discrimination in China, not necessarily that from the state. And that's the theme that we'll come back to throughout the show. What's your take on that? Well, you know, I think that the, the China-Africa relationship from the Chinese side has been so strongly dominated by state-to-state relationships that frequently 
I, I think there's, it, it creates a kind of a blind spot. Um, you know, there, there, there tends to be an assumption that that if the government is on board, then everyone else is on board too. Or maybe more more cynically, but maybe more realistically, that if the government is on board, we don't really care so much about whether the population is on board or not. Um, and I think I think that that create there is it, there's a fundamental weakness I think in the or a vulnerability in the China Africa relationship around that particular issue, um, and because the you know because the relationship has has involved so much people moving back and forth, so many Chinese moving to Africa, so many Africans moving to to China, that weakness I think has been exposed and it's it's it's, it's become a major weak spot in the relationship now I think, um, and there isn't really a very easy way out of that of that situation i think so nigeria in many ways has become the epicenter of this groundswell of anger and resentment and and nigeria is the first place as far as we can see that it's made the jump from the media and from civil society and social media into the political space and it came last week when representative benjamin kalu uh, introduced a motion with nine of his colleagues in the house of representatives uh, to check the immigration status of every Chinese national and business in the country. He also accused China of violating the Vienna Conventions for the treatment of its consul general in Guangzhou and is all around just really, really upset over the situation. He does make a lot of effort, though, to say that he's not racist towards Chinese and this is not specifically anti-Chinese legislation. He's just very, very frustrated about the situation. After his vote, he posted on Twitter a full explanation, a nine-thread tweet kind of explanation about why he did what he did. And then he went to Plus TV Africa to speak with them to explain in more detail about why he is moving this legislation through to check the immigration status of every Chinese national in Nigeria. Let's take a listen to what he said. You called for an investigation into the validity of the immigration documents of Chinese citizens in Nigeria. Could you please explain to us exactly what you wish to achieve by this uh, scrutiny? What COVID has done is that it's changing the dynamics of a whole lot of things. It's changing the narrative. It is time we started doing the enumeration of certain things going on in this country that we don't have access to. One of them is information as to the total number of uh, immigrants in our country. We're starting with China now because uh, China started with the blacks also, and especially Nigerians in China. We also want to know how many Chinese people are in Nigeria. We want to know the uh, how many of them who are legal in Nigeria. We want to know how many legal businesses operated by Chinese people in Nigeria. And that will help us to know whether they are complying with the dictates of the law establishing the uh, expatriate quota. Are they bringing people to do the job Nigerians are supposed to do? Um, when when we see Chinese people, you know, doing get work, uh, watchman, uh, cook, and all the rest of them, we want to know what, what what informed their decision to bring in the number of people they are bringing. What is the immigration doing about it? So it's going to cut across a lot of uh, this motion. Is going to cut across a whole lot of uh, MDAs in Nigeria. So this, again, is unprecedented in Africa. Never before, as far as I know, in 10 years of covering the story, 
have I seen an African legislature take up a motion like this? Uh, and, and really, again, we don't know if this will actually make its way into law, but the optics and the symbolism of it are very, very important. The Chinese embassy, interestingly, did respond to it on their website in uh, Abuja, but they only responded in Chinese. Very, very interesting. And they basically said, uh, they called it a media report, which again, very, very interesting in terms of how they're seeing it. This was not a media report. This was actually a Nigerian legislator, Benjamin Kalu, who we just heard kind of say that. Now, this kind of continued into the week. And on May 5th, uh, one of the Guardian, one of Nigeria's largest newspapers, uh, just basically came out and said what a lot of people are thinking. And I'm quoting here, stop maltreating Africans in China, exclamation point. That was an editorial written by the newspaper, and it was a long editorial written by the newspaper, and they listed a whole bunch of grievances, mixing together lots of different things that go back years, and it really gives an indication that so much of the frustration that we're hearing coming out of places like Nigeria and in Kenya are tied in with a lot of different issues. And Kobus, you referenced this quite a bit in your some of your previous writing and also today, that again, people are not necessarily exactly clear what they're angry about. And again, I don't mean that to diminish anything. There's just a sense of frustration and anger that people around the world also feel. This reminds me in many ways of the rebellion in the United States in support of Trump. It reminds me of the Gilets Jaunes in France. Uh, these, are, these are phenomena that we're seeing in lots of different parts of the world where people are expressing uh, outrage for lots of different reasons that don't always align perfectly. Now, Zhou Pingjian, who is the Chinese ambassador to, uh, to Abuja, he came out in an article, an interview with Punch, another Nigerian newspaper, just this week, trying again, I think, to respond to Benjamin Kalu, to respond to the Guardian editorial. And, and here's what he said. He said, Guangzhou is fighting against COVID-19, not any Nigerian, not any African, not any foreign national, not any Chinese. All foreign nationals are treated equally in China. We reject any differential treatment and we have zero tolerance for discrimination. So again, the Chinese and Ambassador Zhou is articulating the point that we've heard from Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman Zhao Lijian. We've heard it from Hua Chuanyin, another spokesperson. We've heard it from various ambassadors. The Chinese line is consistent. There is no discrimination, zero tolerance for racism. But Kobus, it is a line that is just not resonating anywhere beyond the president and the prime minister's office. Yeah, and I mean, I think that makes sense because because so much of the discrimination that that happened, or the discrimination that that we've seen documented on on socially circulated videos, has been enacted by shopkeepers and and you know kind of hotel keepers and and landlords, not by the police or not by by government officials. You know, so so it's easy to say that there are these these you know regulations have have been put in place or that officially there is no discrimination i mean that that might well be true but it's it's it, it doesn't change the situation that that discrimination is enacted on the ground you know um so so i i'm not surprised that it's not convincing so we want to bring you two views on this situation, and we're doing our show a little bit different today than we normally do it, where we normally have one guest and we dive into it. What we wanted to do is try and, and learn about this chasm in more detail and really go into some of the 
the, the parts of the story that I think the broader narratives are missing. So when we're reading about this in African media, on social media, and certainly in the U.S. and European media, so much of it is that there is you know racism and discrimination in China. China says, no, we don't have any racism and discrimination. And that's kind of where the story ends. And what we're going to do and try and do today is bring you perspectives as to why maybe those narratives are insufficient. Uh, I'll, I'll put a couple disclaimers out here first. It is ridiculous to suggest that two voices from either side represent China or Africa. It should go without saying that when we speak with, with our two guests that they are not representing anybody other than themselves. Uh, so the voice from the African side, Wodemaya, he is speaking on behalf of himself. The voice on the Chinese side, Ma Tianjie, is speaking on behalf of his expertise and himself. So I don't want necessarily to convey that this is the Chinese view and this is the African view. That is not it at all. What we want to do is just bring you two different perspectives, one from a Ghanaian YouTuber and the other from one of China's leading public opinion observers, and just to be able to kind of round out the debate and force us to think beyond just what the headlines are. So let's start with the point of view from Ghana. Many of you who listen to this podcast are probably already well acquainted with Wadamaya. He has 371,000 subscribers on YouTube. He's been doing this for, you know, almost eight years now. He started actually vlogging way back in 2012 from China. And he spent six years in China. And again, for those of us in the China-Africa space, he is nothing short of just a rock star, a celebrity. I've been following him for all these years. And so the opportunity to be able to speak with him about this issue is, was just such a treat for me. But it's interesting because this was a guy who for the early part of his vlogging career was actually quite positive about China. But I'll tell you, he is really angry, both about what happened in Guangzhou and for how the Chinese government has tried to explain it. Let's take a listen to our discussion with Wadamaya. Wadamaya, it has been years since I've wanted to have you on the show, so thank you so much for joining us. We're really honored to have you join us all the way from your home village in Akinofi uh, in Ghana. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. And, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of you. I've been reading a lot about you and also reading your tweets and all that. So it's good to speak to you. It's great to have you on. I wish it was under some better circumstances. Uh, but let's get started because you are, you're not happy with the way things are these days. Exactly. And I want to play with the fact that you have, you know, published a whole series of videos over... I'd say the past couple of weeks, ever since the events in Guangzhou started to unfold. Mm. And uh, I mean, straight up, you're, you're really just angry and pissed off. I mean, there's no other way to kind of say it. Let me just play a clip of a recent uh, soundbite from one of your most recent videos where you talk about kind of how you feel about the Chinese. You can't fool us anymore. Maybe you can't fool the people leading the continent, but the youths are waking up now you know the truth. All you need to do is to help me spread the word, share the video, tag a friend, tag your ministers and your presidents for them to know the truth that our fellow brothers and sisters living in China went through this. You can't fool us anymore. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so what is happening right now is that I follow this story so much and um, I don't spread fake news. I spread whatever is going on. I mean, I only spread the truth. And um, it pisses me off to see um, China propagandas on um, social media, specifically Twitter, 
If you go to the Twitter handle of Chinese Embassy in Uganda and Kenya, they constantly posting about nothing like this happened. Like they're spreading propaganda, like, yo, whatever that was happening in China was fake. You know, I've lived in China and I know that, yo, there is kind of discrimination against Africans living in China. You know, let me tell you this. You know, China is in Africa for a purpose. People are saying that it's, uh, how do you call it? They call it win-win cooperation. They, they call it like Africa is our friend and then China. Yeah, but to me, living in China, from my own experience, they are not here to be friends with you. I mean, yeah, Africa and China, both of them are, I mean, gaining something, but China has a real purpose of which Africans don't know the exact purpose of China. You know, if you live in China before, you will know that a Chinese person would rather give you food than giving you money. If you have lived in China before, you know that a Chinese person would rather give you a cigarette or an alcohol than to give you money. If a Chinese person gives you money, he or she knows that, yo, this is my money and I need this back from you. Food is different. Alcohol is different. Cigarette is different. But when it comes to money, oh my goodness, they know that, yo, I need to get this out of it. So seeing whatever is happening, they keep on pushing the propaganda that nothing like this happened. It was just fake news. I mean, we all know that whenever you say something bad about China, you, you get missing. I, I've been following the whole coronavirus issue about a whistleblowers, all of them getting missing. Some of them, I, the one that I even watched yesterday, I wish I can send you the link. Um, they forced the guy to say this, 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 and that. It was like um, a robot is talking. You know, no, enough is enough. You know, this happened, okay? Africans, I'm so sorry that this happened in my country, okay? Please forgive us. Please, it won't happen again. It was a misunderstanding. Perfect. Then we move on with the relationship. But trying to push the propaganda that this never happened, whilst we know that these videos, I mean, videos never lies. You know, we all know that this didn't happen. So you just have to come out and say that, I'm so sorry, Africans. This was a miscommunication or misunderstanding between Africans and China. We are sorry it will never happen again. Perfect, then we move on. But you can't be coming out with propagandas. And you know what? That What makes me so sad, like, they've managed to convince all the people leading in the, leading the continent that something like this never happened. And I've seen most of them tweeting that, oh, whatever happened was just a social media hype. You know, even the foreign minister of Namibia was saying exactly the same thing. And um, how do you call it? The, the, the first son of, um, what's the name of this president? Uganda president was also tweeting that, oh, China has been our friends since Chairman Mao. And anyone who touches Chinese people, we will deal with them. How can people live leading the continent treat their own people like this just because of China? You know, if if you if you speak to to African government officials, um, you know, and they point out, for example, that well, you know, this is a bad situation, but at the same time, China is a massive trade partner to the continent. You know, China holds a lot of African debt. Um, you know, and and for the for the longer kind of goodwill of the continent, the, the relationship needs to be smoothed over, needs to continue. Like, what would you say to those those kind of African officials? We need accountability from both of them. We need transparency from both of them because we don't really know what is happening. It's like everything that is happening between Africa and China is just between the government. And I know for sure that whatever is happening is not transparent. There's no accountability of whatever that is happening. That is the main reason why there is no mutual respect between Africa and China because an African 
Chinese person can disrespect an African in China and can do exactly the same thing by disrespecting Africans in Africa just because there's no transparency because they know that they can buy you with money. They know that they can buy you with um, uh, with whatever they want to give it to you. You see, so African leaders must come out and tell us that, yo, this thing that we've been doing, China gave us a billion dollars and we used a billion dollars for this project so that the whole citizens can understand whatever that is going on. But whatever is happening between them, it's actually making a lot of people angry. Because right now, if you talk to Africans, <laughs> nobody want to have something to do with Chinese right now. A lot of them are mad. Oh, someone's going to say, you're going to boycott. But me, I feel like it's just misunderstanding. It's just something like, um, call it, these people are not telling us what is going on between them. Do you, do you get what I mean? Because if we know that this is happening, if, if there's an accountability that this is happening between us, Everyone will keep quiet. Everyone will mind their own business. But we don't know what is happening. All we know, even yesterday. Let me tell you something. As an African, I never knew even Nigeria has gold. <laughs> I never knew that Nigeria has gold. But this is the thing that two Chinese men were arrested in Nigeria for illegal mining of gold. You see, there is no transparency. We don't know what is going on. These people are not telling us what is going on. Between Africa and China, all we know is like they keep on beating our own people. They keep on disrespecting our own people. And then Africans will come on the internet, talk, talk, talk. They will be like, oh, just give them a week. They're going to keep quiet. And after a week, everything is done. Just look at what is happening right now. It's fading off without no solution. That is why I stopped talking about this whole Africa-China thing because I feel like people don't even understand what is going on. Yeah. Now, do you think that things have changed over the the past few years? You know, you went to China back in 2012. And for those of you not familiar with uh, with what Amaya's background, he went to Shenyang Aerospace University. Shenyang is in northeastern China. It is an industrial heartland. It is not the prettiest place in the world. <laughs> you spent six years in China. You went from Shenyang, then you went to Beijing. So you you know what you're talking about. Six years in China, particularly in Shenyang, and then you even spent some time in the Chinese countryside. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so and and you you started vlogging from China, and I, I started following you. I feel very proud of this. Back when you had fifteen thousand subscribers, now you're up to three hundred sixty six thousand. So way back in the day, and I remember when you were doing your early YouTube posts, you were quite positive on China. Um, you really seemed like you enjoyed it. <laughs> I'm, I'm still, no, listen, I'm still positive about China. I'm like, uh, I'm still positive about China. Nothing has changed. My love for China is still exactly the same that the way I feel for China six years ago is exactly the same way I feel for China right now. But my only thing is the government. The people are super friendly. I mean, Look at whatever is happening right now in Guangzhou. The people were behaving like robots because they've been given orders to follow. You see, like, when you are doing this Africa-China whole thing, it's not between the people. It's between the government. Did you see the landlords apologizing to people? Because I had all those videos, all those, uh, the landlord going to um, the people that they offended, the people that they disrespected, going to their houses and telling them that, oh, we're so sorry about whatever that happened. I was not asked. So the thing I'm saying right now is that the government is now taking advantage of Africa, knowing that these people have weak government. Like the, the government system in Africa is so weak. 
Like, let me give you an example. I went to South Africa just recently. When you go to South Africa, you will see a Chinese police station in South Africa. Can, you, can an African country establish a police station in, in China? No. I just feel like there should be some fairness. Whatever you think that Africans cannot do in China, you shouldn't come to Africa and do exactly the same thing. I, I, I love China. I enjoyed my time in China. Like I would say that I discovered myself in China. I am who I am today because of China and I'm always grateful. But I'm just saying that when it comes to the government system dealing with an African government system, they're just trying to take advantage of Africa. Let me give you an example. When I was in China, I got um, a TV station. I don't want to mention the name because of the brand. They, they told me to, okay, you know what? You did a video about, what's the name of the video I did? Um, being a foreigner in a slow-speed train. The video went viral in China. CGTN posted the video. So many media outlets in China posted the video. And uh, one of the outlets reached out to me and said, you know what? We, we established exactly the same um, train station in Kenya. We would love you to go to Kenya for the first time, go record video, and go and tell them the influence of China in Kenya. I did just that. I went to Kenya, I filmed the video, I came back to China. I gave them the footages. I was like, okay, you know what? I'm done. This is the work you sent me to go and do. I gave them the footages. Can you believe that? After they went through the footages, they were like, we are not going to post it. Why not? Why? Why not? What is the reason? Why not? The reason because the people in Kenya were telling me that the Chinese people living in Kenya are taking advantage of us. They are taking our jobs. The jobs that even a common Kenyan can do, Chinese people are doing it. So when they were, when they were sending me, they didn't tell me that, yo, um, just get us all the, only the positive things. You know, some of the uh, things that I brought was positive. But because of some of them telling us that, yo, they're taking our jobs and all that, they told me we are not going to post this video. I was like, What? I mean, which means that you try, no country on earth is perfect. Stop trying to always, oh, China is perfect, preaching China to be that, I mean, godly or heavenly country. No, every, God, every country got its shortcoming. So when I went to Kenya, these people were telling me the truth. This is what is happening. You came back to China and China is telling you that. I'm not going to publish the video because the people are saying that China is taking. No, they are voicing out their opinion, which could be true. So you are saying that because of that, you're not going to publish the video, which I don't think it makes sense. I wanted to ask you, uh, um, you know, in in February, because Eric and I have been covering this day by day, you know, a lot of detail. So, so it feels like years ago, but it's actually just, you know, about two months ago. Um, in February, there were several incidents in Africa where Chinese people were quite badly treated because of perceptions that they are that they're covering, uh, carrying COVID-19. So, you know, you had like Chinese people kind of like chased out of places, like being shouted at in taxi ranks. Um, you know, no, nothing on the scale, I think, of, of people actually being kicked out of their houses, like in Guangzhou, but but still kind of bad treatment. Um, how do you balance those two? Like, do, should should if 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 China is to ask, uh, you know, to apologize for the treatment of Africans in Guangzhou, should Africans be be apologizing for treatment of Chinese in in February? We we. In the, like personally, I even um, I think um, I saw one video of uh, when two Chinese men tried to enter a public transport in Ghana where everybody was running away. And after that, I saw um, so many Ghanaians saying speaking against it that they shouldn't treat 
people like this because of coronavirus and all that, right? Um, that is that is the only incident that I saw. I mean, I, I saw a couple of them, but it's not to the extreme of kicking them from their houses. It's not extreme of letting them sleep in the street. Do, do, you, get, do you get my point? Uh, like the way they treated, like okay, going to buy food. They said you're not you're not supposed to buy here. Going to do this, they're not supposed to do it over here. It's they they always looking for an opportunity to discriminate against Africans. But whatever that was happening in Africa, I feel like. You can't match the two. Um, personally, I, I just told people that, no, you, you cannot treat people this way. You know, we are all speaking against it. Like you cannot treat people because of like this because of coronavirus and all kind of thing. But it, it was not a major thing. It, it was just the countryside. It was just some countryside where people were uh, treating Chinese people like this way. Let me tell you something. Just um, two kilometers away uh, from where I live, two kilometers away, um, the person who confirmed COVID-19 case was Chinese guy. He came into the country three weeks ago and now he has the virus. So imagine that this guy has a virus, which means that all the Chinese living in that particular countryside has to be kicked out from their houses. No, they just picked only him, took him to the isolation center and they started treating him. You see, this is how it's supposed to be done. If you are telling me that one African has confirmed the case, yeah, do it in a more civilized way, not kicking people to the street. And also you came to give us an explanation that because you wanted to um, social distancing, that's why you're kicking people from their houses. That's, that's a message from the foreign minister. They wanted to uh, kick, they wanted to observe social distancing. That's why they're kicking people from their houses, All of which I think it doesn't make sense because if you live in China, you realize that even in one room, Chinese people live in like a single room. You see more Chinese people in there than Africans living in one particular room like that. So I just thought like um, it doesn't match. The two doesn't match at all. I can't tell from your comments if you're more upset with African governments than you are with the Chinese or both. I mean, in both the examples that you gave of the gold miners in Nigeria, and people have had same complaints about gold miners in Ghana, uh, the Gramsay, and then also the police stations in South Africa, which are these uh, kind of helping local police. Eric, if I if I can interrupt, um, the the South African the, the South African police station situation was it's a community outreach initiative from the the South African Chinese community, not from the Chinese government. Um, so it's a it's a you know because because there's so much crime in Johannesburg and and Cape Town targeting Chinese um, nationals or Chinese migrants. It's a uh, it's community outreach um, between the South African Chinese community and the South African police. So so it it, it essentially is a, a kind of a, a small office set up to provide Chinese language policing services to the Chinese community, translation and and special kind of um, uh, coordination between the community and 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 the police to to uh, to ensure crackdowns on you know organized crime and so on. So so it's it's a it's a South African initiative. It's not a, a, a it's not Chinese police being transplanted and setting up a police station in South Africa. I'm saying that if that is the case, then which means we have to uh, we have to bring exactly the same thing to Guangzhou, China, because that's the place that you find so many Africans living in one community. You know, so if it's a community kind of thing, we should establish exactly the same thing in China, of which I strongly believe that nothing like this sort will ever happen in China. Right. So it sounds like what you want from the Chinese is fairness 
and an apology. That's it. It's not even it's not even an apology, but we need to have a fair deal. We we know that oh you know like I love the relationship between Africa and China. Like I, I learn the language. Sometimes I understand Chinese people and I understand Africans, but I feel like it's not fair because because do, do you get what I mean? Relationship. It's not a fair relationship. It's like you are dating a girl and the girl is cheating on you. Yeah, but but Cobus <laughs> he made the point a couple weeks ago. Actually, I, again, I've lost track of time, Cobus, with all that's been going on. But you made the point earlier that France has been mistreating African migrants for a really long time. And I, I've lived in France for a very long time. The suburbs, the banlieue in, in, in Paris, the, the police harassment is regular. African migrants do a little bit better in the United States, but also face a number of challenges just by virtue of being black in the United States. Where, I, I just, I guess, I understand where the outrage is coming from with regards to China, but do you also have the same level of outrage about France and other countries where Africans struggle as migrants as well? Since I have lived in China, I will only be able to talk in the country that I've lived in. And um, I really understand and know what I'm saying. I, I won't go a stream of talking about France and USA or the UK because I have never been there. I only speak based on what my personal experience, what I've seen and what I've heard. That's fair. You understand? That's very because fair. the only thing I've been telling Africans is that they have, to, they have to wake up. They have to wake up and fight for what belongs to them because if you don't take care, you know, we'll keep on complaining, complaining, complaining. And Africans will be treated like this everywhere around the world. It's not just China. Everyone is just want to take advantage of the continent because we don't have strong government system. That is, the, that is the only thing. Everyone who wants to come to Africa wants to take advantage of Africa. Almost everyone. You know, China started so well. China started so well with Africa. When they got to know what Africa has, when they got to know what Africa can do for them. No, they started taking advantage. So if you could speak to African governments, um, how would you like them to change the relationship with, with China? Like how, how on the government-to-government level, like how should things work differently? I will surely tell them that they need to be an accountability of whatever they do. They should let people know that, yeah, we're working with China together. China is giving us this money, and this is what we are using the money for. You see, like every time there is Africa-China relationship in China, China gives them money, right, to share among themselves. But you ask me, where does the money go to? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. You see, th- there's no transparency. They should think about the country than themselves. They should. They should think about the country than themselves because I feel like they just want to make money. They just want to, yo, I want to build this here. I want to have an account in Switzerland. I want my kids to go abroad and study instead of thinking about the people. If all the money that China has been giving to Africa, if they use the money wisely, oh my goodness, because I've, you know, sometimes when you travel within Africa, I've been to 17 African countries right now. I, I see the presence of China construction everywhere that I go to. Like you see China in Africa, like I can literally see a project and I'll tell you that it's China who built this. So this is, this is just simple. They should use the money wisely because I know China is giving you the money, but China is not helping you. 
It's not like China is helping you. Nobody will give you money for free. No. China is giving you money and he knows what he's going to get from you. So if they know what they are getting from them, you also have to know that, no, this project has been done. This is done so that it will be a fair deal. But you don't just take the money and then China will take the resources and nothing is happening. And when they see that thing, they will keep on, I mean, taking advantage. I know somebody that lives in China who built like a whole mansions in China with gold from Ghana. I, I, I met him in person. I met the guy in person. He said he was living in Ghana in the 90s. And then he started like um, smuggling, how do you call it, um, all this gold from Hong Kong to Shenzhen. And then he moves to China. You see, so they know that there is the weak system. The government system in here is weak. I'm going to give you so many examples. I met a guy who have built uh, one of the biggest restaurants in Kenya. I met him in person. When I talked to him, this is what he told me. If him should manage Kenya for 10 years, Kenya will be the best place to be. Because what he has seen since he came to Kenya, realized that uh, wherever he goes to, he has to use money to speak. Like, okay, oh, I get to this place. I want this deal. He just pay and he goes forward. He goes to this place. He wants to do this. He has to pay. Even people with his paid visas in Kenya, you go, you pay, then you go. You see, this is what is killing the continent. You must think about the people, how to move the continent forward. That's why I came back home. I, I, I did not, like so many people are saying that uh, because China deported me, that's why I left. I established a company in China before leaving. I believe in actions. I, I believe in like, you know, um, enough of the talking. If you really have Africa at heart, you have to start something. That to stay in Europe, stay in China and be talking about Africa. That's why I came back to Africa to start something. So that is what the leaders must do. Start something. Let us see that, yo, this money you're taking from China is using for this purpose. But we don't see anything. We basically don't see anything. And everyone on the internet is angry about China. If you even say anything, people feel like you want to defend China or something. But I don't hate China. I don't have any hate, but I just don't like the way their government is trying to fool our government that nothing like this sort is ever happening in China and uh, we are all the same and that kind of thing. That's uh, one kind of bullshit propaganda that they have to stop. And the video is You Can't Fool Us Anymore. It's on Wadamaya's YouTube channel. If people want to follow you on YouTube and Instagram, how can they find you? Um, like Instagram is Mr. Ghana, baby, and um, YouTube is Wadamaya. What Amaya. I'll put links for both of those in the show notes. What Amaya, what an honor to have you on the program. We're so excited to be able to have you and uh, to be able to talk to you and get your insights on what's going on. And we'll continue to follow your videos and hope to have you back soon on the show. Uh, thank you so much, Eric. I appreciate it. Kobus, again, it was such a treat for us to be able to speak to What Amaya. He is, again, one of my favorite YouTubers. And, and again, what was so interesting to hear from him was how, again, all of the points that he was making about the gold mining and the police stations in South Africa and all of that really reflects this the mixture of issues that have been building up over the years. And then the key thing that he's angry about is the Chinese response and this kind of tone-deaf, 
you know, a rigid official response that is, and and he's documented this in a lot of his videos, and I can see why a lot of people are just furious about this. And by the way, this is not just an African issue. Uh, This is the same thing that people are responding to in Africa, as well as in the US, in Europe, and lots of different places about the way that China is interacting with the world. Uh, and so he is kind of reflecting that that frustration and that anger. Uh, so again, it doesn't always line up perfectly, but that may not be the the key point and the key takeaway here. What I was thinking as as I was listening to him was that in in I've how could I have to put this um, like in in lots of ways I, I see a similar kind of of, of discussion of the China Africa relationship in in from coming from other other parts of Africa as well, which is not necessarily focusing on the the incidents in Guangzhou as this kind of like you know kind of break breaking incident or, or you know kind of or um, you know kind of like like kind of pushing us into a new territory it's more that it's a kind of a culmination and a, a, a revelation of, of an exposing of, of what is really at the heart of the China Africa relationship so so there is this kind of this, this thing that everyone knows the China Africa relationship is exploitative and unfair and see Guangzhou proves it so so in that sense you know there is a there is a feeling that that Guangzhou um, confirms something that everyone has kind of known already. Um, and you know, and and that as I, I remember reading this, there's this very interesting kind of theory in in the the uh, the theory of of public diplomacy, where people make the point that that is the hardest kind of perception to overturn. You know, if it's something that that seems to confirm something that everyone has already kind of known, even though they weren't really articulating it as such. That is an extremely difficult kind of like perception of of a country to overturn, and I think in this case this is a this is a textbook example of that. It's like whatever the the particular kind of ob, you know objective weight of the of the the kind of ill treatment in Guangzhou, the, its wider impact is that it seems to confirm what Africans already assume about the China Africa relationship, and I think that that is a that is a, a very like important thing to keep in mind. So at the heart of a big part of the conflict and the miscommunication, whatever you want to call it, I don't know the right language to assign to it, are the words racism and discrimination. And that is a word, those are words that are being used on on social media to define what happened in Guangzhou. Interestingly, the Chinese side is using those two words very, very aggressively to say, we don't have racism and discrimination. So let's now shift our conversation away from the African side to start spending our time looking at the Chinese side. And because again, there are two very, very distinct and different points of view on this, and both feel as passionately about the other. Uh, So before we get into our conversation with Matientia, I want to bring you a, a point of view from uh, Simon Yu. Now, he's a YouTuber, and, and, and again, he's just a normal guy. In fact, his YouTube channel is called Just an Average Chinese Guy. So we're not bringing you a point of view from a, a scholar, uh, you know, a government official, somebody like Ambassador Kuang, who we had on a couple of weeks ago. No, this is a guy who literally brands his YouTube channel Just an Average Chinese Guy. He lives in Shanghai, and he basically vlogs from a park in in his neighborhood. And it's absolutely fascinating. But in so many ways, he published a 13-minute video that provides the best explanation from what I understand after me living in China for 13, 14 years and having been involved with China for 30 years. Um, I recognize so many of the points that he talked about 
uh, and, and explained in a video that he talked, that he explained about what happened in Guangzhou. Now, he raised two very critical points that explains why China's political system is more responsible for the poor treatment of Africans in Guangzhou than outright racism and discrimination. And I'm going to play a little bit of sound from him, but I need to set up the soundbite so you understand where he's coming from. The first point that he makes is he introduces this call, this concept called the one-cut policy. In Chinese, it's called yi道企业政策. And it's this idea that the Chinese, when they approach, let's say he uses the example of there's a cancer in your hand. Now, one way to extract the cancer out is to go in and use laser surgery and, and, and you know, take it out. And that doesn't affect the rest of the hand and you can heal. But it's more expensive. It's more complicated. It takes a little bit longer. Okay, that's one way of approaching a problem. The one-cut policy way, and this is the way that oftentimes Chinese officials deal with problems, is they then just cut the whole hand off. It solves the problem, it's much faster, and it, it achieves the same objective. And he talks about, and again, anybody who's lived in China has seen examples of the one-cut policy. He gives the example of there was a fire in Beijing a couple of years ago in a, a migrant a kind of dormitory area. And it, rather than just put out the fire in that one dormitory, they raised the entire city block. They did a whole crackdown on migrants. They shut down migrant schools. I mean, it was just bam. We saw this in Wuhan. They shut down the entire city really, really fast. And it's the way that China oftentimes approaches their public policy is with just this massive giant bludgeon. Again, one cut. The second point that he raised in his explanation has to do with the meritocracy system that drives the bureaucratic system in China. And you really can't understand how politics works without understanding this meritocratic system that they have. And this is something very, very difficult for outsiders to understand because government officials in China are not accountable to the people. They don't pursue popularity the same way that, say, uh, in democratic countries that they do. They pursue objectives, targets, and quotas that are set by their superiors. And as an official in China, it doesn't matter if people like you or if you're popular. What matters is that you achieve your targets. And from here, I'd like to let Simon pick it up. Why I'm telling you this, why do this, you know, meritocracy system has anything to do with the unfair treatment of those foreigner gods? If the number of infections rises again, then it means that we have to shut down offices and factories again, and our people will be put back into quarantine, which will further damage the economy of your region. And you are going to be even more behind from this year's GDP target. Besides that, in China, controlling the pandemic has already become the highest priority for all local government officials. So if everywhere else made it under control, but the number in your places rises again, then it's going to be considered as a huge accident that can cause instability for the country, right? So officials will spare no efforts to make sure this thing is under control. Uh, that's why you see a lot of like radical action has been implemented in China during this pandemic, such as like blocking roads and locking people inside their apartments. You may ask, like, won't those actions upset the local citizens and breach some individual rights? Well, probably yes, but unlike Western country, the priority for our official is not to gain popularity among average people. 
the priority for them is to achieve the KPI assigned by this so-called meritocracy system. That is also why foreigners have experienced such unfair treatment. I mean, the government could have done a better job, you know, uh, maybe check their passports first and see whether they have left country uh, during this pandemic and then decide what to do accordingly and maybe coordinate with some hotels and make sure everybody has a place to live before kicking everyone out of their apartment, right? But why do they forget to do that? Like I've said before, that's not their priority. Their priority is to make sure the number don't rise again. Any other action can be done in order to achieve that priority. So Kobus, that is a very different explanation of what happened than what we've heard in the press coverage. Human Rights Watch, in fact, just issued a, re a report on the situation in Guangzhou, and they said it's textbook racism. Uh, but at the end of the day, what may have led to this crackdown that it led to evictions and, and all of the chaos that ensued in Guangzhou and afterwards may not have actually been racially motivated, but actually prompted by the way that the Chinese government system works. I have a feeling that's going to be very, very unsatisfying as an answer for a lot of people outside, particularly in Africa, but also in, the, in Europe and the U.S., who look at issues on these cross-cultural things, oftentimes through a prism of race. What's your take on that? I think both can be true at the same time. Like the, um, you know, I think anyone who looks at the history of racism, and again, keep in mind, I'm a, I'm a white guy, so, you know, take that as, you know, like with, you know, keep that in mind. But um, is that... Is that almost you know, and very seldomly is 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 racism enacted through and through specifically racist laws. You know, South Africa, apartheid South Africa, is, is a is an is an exception to that to that case. But in most cases, in many countries in Europe and the U.S., it's always about public safety or about public health or school districts or you know like it's it's like racism is enacted in many many ways you know and it's almost never called what it is you know so so sure i mean it, it this is like a kind of hardcore kind of you know um crackdowns to for for public health reasons but at the same time you know kind of it it could be that could create a very convenient pretext for for racist um for racist action um i think the fact that 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 black foreigners were treated so much worse than than foreigners of other other kind of backgrounds, you know, kind of is a is a um, proves that case. I think. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so interesting. So let's now get really an expert point of view on this. And again, I, I'm interviewing my my heroes here in today's show. So Matien Jie is a guy that I've been following for a long time. He's one of the, the really the most talented journalist that I that I've seen in China. Uh, he's a very multifaceted personality in terms of his skills and what he does. One of the things that he does is the Chublik Opinion blog. Now, it's the Chinese public opinion, and it's in English. Uh, you go to Chublik Opinion, and you can find it. We'll put a link to it in our show notes. And he is really one of the most astute observers about uh, Chinese uh, public opinion. And he recently wrote an article on the situation in Guangzhou for his Panda Paw Dragon Claw blog. So it's another one that he edits as well. Uh, but also it touched on so many of the different reasonings for what went on behind it. And so we really were thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to him about the Chinese public opinion view on what happened in Guangzhou and to kind of take some of the issues that Copas and I are wrestling with and go a little bit deeper. Let's take a listen to our discussion with Ma Tianjie. 
Matien Jie, welcome to the podcast. It's great to finally have you on the show. I've been a big admirer of you for a long, long time, and we're, we're very excited to get your perspective on some of these very contentious issues these days. Very happy to be on the show. Tianjie, there does seem to be this really fundamental disconnect between the way that people in China, both the government and civil society, look at what happened in Guangzhou and the way that people outside of China, most notably in Africa, are seeing it. You recently wrote an article for Panda Paw where you kind of looked into this. Uh, talk to us a little bit about, as an expert who follows Chinese public opinion, what, how are the Chinese kind of seeing this issue? How do they process this issue? And how is it being covered in the Chinese, you know, the media and the press that's shaping public opinion? Yeah, I think people outside China need to understand that there's a, a, a very high level of anxiety uh, currently in the society because uh, China has been in a mode of lockdown um, for as long as three uh, months now, since the end of January, uh, and for most part of China. Um, so you can understand that people are anxious because this has been quite prolonged, um, and people's lives have been disrupted because all those lock lockdown measures and quarantines and the testing, and it's just total uncertainty as to where this is going. And this is added to the complexity that um, China is currently at the risk of having a second wave um, of uh, COVID-19 cases, just uh, when its domestic cases are sort of being stabilized, right, into double-digit or even single-digit levels. And this adds to the anxiety because people are thinking, well, we were almost done, right? We're almost uh, expecting and, and looking at uh, a sort of a back to normalcy to some extent. But now, why are we starting to de deal with the imported cases right now? Are we going to have this um, lockdown and quarantines all over again, right? So this is the whole mood of the Chinese society right now. People are just so anxious. And they are directing this kind of anxiety to any people who is being seen as um, disrupting the, 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 the prospect of a return to normal, right? So they're directing this to, for example, people uh, just coming out of Hubei province, which is the original epicenter uh, of the COVID-19 in China, uh, because they are anxious, people from other provinces are anxious that they are bringing um, uh, the, the virus out of the, the lockdown, the, the epicenter. Um, and people are suspicious that are, are they... Uh, are there like uh, cases where you don't have symptoms, but you're still carrying the virus, right? So you can see that in, in many places, people are placing a lot of um, scrutiny um, uh, on people, particularly coming from the Hubei province. And I think in this Guangdong uh, case, again, this is the kind of projection of anxiety from the regulator and also from the public on a community that, that's being seen as uh, bringing new cases, right, into a situation um, where uh, it seems to be like stabilizing, right? Especially in Guangdong, which was not uh, considered a, a big epicenter in the first wave of, of domestic cases. Now they are becoming very, very anxious because they see, wow, why are there so many imported cases right now? What's going to do with my, uh, with my life, right? Especially for parents, if you have a kid who has been at home for, for three months straight and you, you don't know when you can send your kid to school, for example. These people are, are anxious, and, and they're apparently directing a lot of this anxiety uh, into a kind of anger right, at this kind of cases or communities that they, they're seeing as sort of bringing trouble into my um, state of life, basically.
Is there any discussion about about the, the different treatment of different foreigner communities in relation to this issue in China? So, you know, the, the discussion in Africa has been that African migrants and particularly black people um, have been subjected to worse or more more kind of stringent treatment than than other foreigner communities. Um, is that that theme coming up in the Chinese discourse at all? I think there there is some, but I think most Chinese people, especially online uh, people, they tend to group foreigners together, right? And I think one of the key narrative uh, of the COVID nineteen uh, situation in China is that people are. There, there are real resentment to the government treating uh, foreign nationals uh, better, actually, than Chinese citizens. So before this Guangzhou uh, episode happened, uh, there were a few very high-profile cases in the Chinese media and also on Chinese internet um, that uh, some like foreign nationals are just given being given preferential treatment, right, in by by certain local governments. Uh, there was a very high-profile case of a British. Uh, a guy coming back uh, from the UK when the epi- when COVID nineteen was uh, was really having a sort of a serious outbreak, he w- he went back from UK to Shanghai, uh, where he was supposed to be uh, hotel quarantined uh, mandatorily, uh, but after some negotiation, he managed to stay at home, right, to to have home quarantine, and this kind of uh, leniency is unimaginable unimaginable for a Chinese person, uh, if you can even dare to raise that request. But somehow the Shanghai authority show some flexibility and, and, and let him stay home, uh, which actually triggered a lot of very negative uh, response from, from Chinese netizens, e- including Hu Xijing, um, who was the, 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 the chief editor of Global Times. And there were also other uh, similar cases, uh, which really makes the Chinese public think, why are we as Chinese citizens uh, being treated um, sort of uh, in a sort of a worse way than and than foreigners. Why are they given a preven- preferential treatment? And I think this kind of impression was sort of carried um, to the public's sort of response to, for example, the situation in Guangzhou. Even though I think in Guangzhou the black community probably are subject to more uh, stringent um, uh, measures than the Chinese national. Uh, for example, what I have read and seen is that some uh, black community uh, members were asked to do an extra 14 days of quarantine on top of the 14-day quarantine that most people are subject to in China today, right? So, but I think in public opinion, there's no, not much sort of nuance being sort of uh, imported into that kind of situation. So people tend to sort of un- unload, right, their resentment about this kind of preferential or perceived pre- preferential treatment on the, ho- the situation in Guangzhou, so that's very interesting because that adds a certain layer of complexity to the narrative that we on the outside looking in are, are understanding. So the words that have been used to describe what happened in Guangzhou are racism and xenophobia. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how much xenophobia and racism, both that have, like in a lot of cultures, long traditions in China. I mean, China is not exceptional in that kind of case, even though the Chinese government in their official response says there is no racism and there's no xenophobia. And that, or discrimination is the way they frame it. That is what's hard for people in Africa to understand because their social media feeds are filled with all sorts of videos, some fake, some legitimate, a whole mix of things together that show the disrespect and the maltreatment of Africans in 
a Chinese context. I'm not necessarily going to say it's in Guangzhou because a lot of the videos are are dated and old, but there is this overriding prevailing sense that discrimination and racism and xenophobia are taking place. But in a Chinese context, how does that how is that seen? Because it doesn't sound like what you're saying is that it's racially or xenophobic, you know, focused. Yeah, I think there are two things. First, the African community in Guangzhou has been sort of a long-standing um, issue uh, on Chinese internet uh, way before this whole episode of COVID nineteen, right? So I think since um, a few years ago, when the the African community in Guangzhou really grow uh, grew in size, I think there has been some kind of a tension uh, between um, the local uh, Guangzhou public and this community, right? Because I think this happened actually quite um, swiftly, I think, in recent history, right? So that the community in Guangzhou really um, grew quite fast because of the connection, the economic connection between China and Africa and this, and Guangzhou, the, the role of Guangzhou as a trade hub, international trade hub, right? So I think there is sort of an uncomfortableness of the local uh, public about suddenly why are there people with different skin color, right, in my community? Uh, and it seems it's really developing fast, right? What, what, I'm, uh, what I'm going to cope with it. And understandably, there will be um, so this kind of expression of xenophobia or just fear, right? Why am I seeing so many uh, uh, African people on, my, on the street, right? What are they doing here? Because if, if you're not in the business of international trade, you don't know why... Um, those actually traders and business the businessmen uh, and students right are doing in Guangzhou and there's uh, this kind of novelty and also sort of uncomfortableness to it right and and some of them finds their way onto the Chinese inter- internet as expre- expressions of xenophobia or even racism I think that's undeniable right if you look at Weibo and look at Chinese internet there are racial slurs right being thrown um, at this these these communities. Um, and this this is a sort of a long-standing issue for Guangzhou because of its role as an international trade center and because of the uh, the growth, just the speed of growth of the African community there because of the uh, the economic ties between China and Africa. One of the one of the fundamental narratives that underlies the China-Africa relationship is this idea that they're both developing countries and and for that reason frequently they're both up against developed countries in the West. Um, and so they're working together because they're already they're, they're facing a kind of uneven playing field. Um, how much traction does that have with the Chinese public? To which extent is do, do you think the Chinese public think of, think of China as having a natural connection with a place like Africa? And to which extent is it more couched in terms of, oh, we need to help this poor, unfortunate continent? I think there, on this issue, there is sort of a generational shift, right? So if you ask a person, a Chinese person from my, my parents' generation, for example, I think their edu- from their education, um, there is really this kind of solidarity message, right, between China and the third world, right? Um, and, and they were, when they were young, when they were uh, being educated and being raised up, uh, when China um, was under uh, Mao, for example, the message is that uh, we are together, right? The Asians, the Africans, the Latin Americans, we're together, yeah, right? We're together, um, and we're sort of part of the third world, and we have sort of this the shared destiny, shared shared um, um, uh, fate uh, in the global stage, right? But I think this kind of message really shifted after uh, reform and opening, uh, where I think 
the the imperative to to grow Chinese economy and to integrate into the world market actually I think make the whole country so the the outlook of the whole country directed at the West and and the more um, developed world um, as sort of a role model that China should be right especially from an economic point of view and I think if you look at culturally the manifestation is that uh, most Chinese young people these days. Um, would relate more to the American culture, right? European culture, Japanese culture, pop culture, um, but they probably will have very little uh, interest or uh, very little uh, knowledge of what's happening in Africa or what's happening in in Southeast Asia or what's happening in Latin America. Um, and um, recently, I think that Chinese there are Chinese scholars and Chinese uh, intellectuals have actually raised this. Um, uh, issue and, and pointing out that there is definitely a generational um, gap uh, in in this whole thing, and after the Guangzhou incident, there was even uh, a call to go back to the the Bandung spirit, right? The the, the nineteen fifty five conference in Indonesia, where there was really um, a solidarity between the the third world, and there was tough questions being asked: Have China actually forgot? Its commitment um, to the third world uh, as part of it, and and its sort of solidarity um, with the, the the brothers and sisters, right, of the third world. One of the things that I've noticed just in my discussions on social media, and I don't know again if this is representative of of anything else. And I I have a Weibo account that I talk in Chinese, and it's usually a personal account. And then I have LinkedIn, and that too is accessible to Chinese. And then of course, there's now more and more Chinese people on Twitter and Facebook. Is that there's a hardening of the discussion, and I think that's not just in China. That's happening in the U.S. and elsewhere as well. But one of the the feelings that I get is that a lot of Chinese people feel like they're under attack right now by the outside world. Uh, the United States has been relentless in its attack on on China. It is it's particularly the line of you know putting accountability for what happened in COVID nineteen onto the Chinese. Donald Trump, Mike Pompeo, a lot of American politicians have pushed very hard on this. Europeans also are pushing very hard, and there was this sense now that with the kind of detection of faulty masks and in and some of the PPE that came into Europe that was sent back from Holland and Spain and Turkey. That there was a lot of resentment in China, and there was the sense of the word that it kept coming back over and over again, both in English and in Chinese, in discussions was, "Well, they're ungrateful," and I hear that in the context of Africa as well. Well, we're giving all this aid, and we're giving all this, and you're ungrateful, so forget it. We don't want to talk about it anymore. And this attack from the United States and from others that there's, a, and so I feel like Chinese social media, at least, is on the defensive. And so when the Guangzhou incident came. And now there's these attacks coming from, or these criticisms and the negative narrative that's taking hold of the civil society relationship.、Uh, again, Chinese are, feel like they're on the defensive again.、Uh, I'd be interested to get your take on that. Yeah, I think the the general mood these days is,、uh, especially in response to this kind of international criticism of Chinese response to COVID nineteen,、um, is one of be- bewilderment. I would say um, because um, the in Inside China, the internal narrative of COVID nineteen is also sort of、um, shifting, right? Because if you look at、um, before March, when COVID nineteen was still very much a Chinese phenomenon, right? And and it's the Chinese,、um, uh, the, the China that is fighting the battle of controlling COVID nineteen.、Um, the the predominant uh, uh, internal discussion and narrative about the the situation was about. Responsibility, right? Accountability, um, 
uh, looking at government government mismanagement, looking at transparency issues, right? Looking at why we didn't respond earlier, right? And there's a lot of this kind of reflection going on. But after March, when the situations in Europe and the United States become uh, more and more serious, I think there's really a kind of even curiosity or, or, or uh, uh, not understanding why this had to happen, right? And, and I think, particularly, I think the mismanagement in the United States have uh, completely changed the narrative here back in China, uh, where people, people are looking at this whole uh, uh, pandemic uh, from a new perspective. Uh, people are asking, maybe this really is not a, a new challenge for everyone. And, and maybe there was not much uh, mismanagement, because if you look at um, more developed countries, right, more advanced economies um, with supposedly democratic, uh, transparent um, and capable governments, they are still not uh, able to manage this, this well, right? So I think uh, the public mood in China shifted quite significantly after seeing those developments in the West and starting to think maybe this is just because it's a new virus. Um, nobody has an answer to it. Um, and we are actually doing, we have actually done a pretty good job if you look at the, the numbers uh, comparing different countries' response, right? And I think this sort of added to the kind of be bewilderment when uh, criticism uh, are directed at China uh, for not uh, managing this, this whole thing well, especially, I think, from the United States, um, when people think there's very little legit legitimacy from the U.S. side, actually, to accuse China when um, the situation was not managed uh, uh, even like better right, in that situation. So I think this added to another kind of um, uh, resentment because uh, people are thinking that uh, the outside world is accusing China pretty unfairly, right? It's, they are not basing their accusation on numbers, on actual uh, look, actually looking at what China has done. Um, and I think that the kind of rejection um, to that kind of criticism has become much, much stronger. Uh, and this has also sort of directed, um, sort of reaffirmed uh, um, the idea that we have done nothing wrong uh, we shouldn't uh, self-criticize, right? Because if you look at the outside world, they are just accusing us unfairly and we should have internal solidarity and just fight back. I think that's sort of the, the narrative shift um, from the beginning of the, 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 the epidemic to sort of the current stage. Um, and then linking on to that, um, what is currently the discussion in China about what China's global role should be after the after the pandemic? Is is it essentially a, an idea that China was on a straight trajectory to 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 economic leadership, economic and political world leadership, and and it's been derailed from a little bit, and it needs to get back on the same trajectory as we s were seeing in like twenty seventeen or so? Or is there also a discussion? that China should rethink what its global role is going to be? I think there's currently not much of that kind of um, debate because I think the country is still very much preoccupied with having sort of a second wave of um, uh, cases, infections under control. I think if you look at public discussions uh, at the moment, it's still very much focused, focused on um, domestic issues. How can we um, totally... Uh, come back to a level of normal, normalcy, right? How can we um, actually get this whole thing under control, especially with the international important cases? Because um, there are new um, 
epicenters being sort of uh, starting to emerge, especially in, in the northeast um, bordering Russia, right? So I think the country is still right now pretty, pretty preoccupied with those issues. Um, so from an internet and sort of social media point of view, we haven't seen much um, high-level uh, debate discussions about China's global role. Um, and I think that's why I think the, the, the anxiety um, is still very high and people are being really harsh on whoever um, is seen as sort of disrupting uh, a return to normalcy, right? So uh, no matter it's the African community or somebody from Hubei or some um, foreign students or Chinese students coming back from the United States bringing some uh, uh, bring back the cases uh, to Beijing, for example. These are sort of still dominating headlines currently in China, and people are getting really, really uh, anxious. Last question, because I know you're very busy and we're very grateful for the time that you've taken with us. When you look at the coverage of what's been going on in Africa about Guangzhou, and you see the the public opinion vibe that's going on in China, and there is this chasm that's growing between the two, what would you want Africans who are looking at this story to, to understand that they're not picking up either from the social media videos or from the news coverage about what happened in Guangzhou and the situation in China today? I think uh, the African people should understand the general context of how China is fighting COVID-19, right? Because I think people from the outside probably don't know much about actually what is going on with China's measures, right, uh, targeting COVID-19. And as we are sort of living through it, we understand, for example, the the whole um, control measures uh, that China is, is implementing is highly demanding on the government's ability to control and surveillance the movement of every individual in this country, right? And for the past three months, that's what, what we are living under. So you have um, uh, mobile phone apps um, that tracks your movement. Uh, you have testing regimes. You have very complicated quarantine regimes. You have uh, different requirements for you to go to work, for you to stay at home, for you to um, eat dinner at some restaurant, different kind of rules being implemented, or highly demanding on the government's ability to track uh, and manage the movement of populations. And I think in that context, I think that's particularly challenging for the government to sort of bring the foreign nationals living in China into that very sophisticated uh, network of, of control regimes, right? because there has been traditional issues with, with visas, um, with sort of, sort of uh, monitoring and this kind of things, especially there are sort of very tricky diplomatic uh, implications to this kind of things. Um, so I think it, it's within this kind of context that conflicts um, are, are likely to emerge, right? And, and sort of clashes like the one that happened in Guangzhou is likely to emerge. And this is not going to go away we're, we're very fast because it's, if, if the, this uh, pandemic situation continues, there will be probably a prolonged period where there will be tension between um, the, the foreign national community in China and sort of the whole control regime on the virus, right? And some of them, some, sometimes the clashes are really not uh, sort of racial based, right? These are really a management challenge for the Chinese government um, and uh, in responding to the virus. I think people outside the, uh, China should uh, sort of have more understanding of w what is going on and, and sort of point to the problems that are actually happening and try to sort of address them um, from a pragmatic uh, and practical point of view. Yeah. Matian Jie is the uh, founder of the Chublic Opinion blog and also the founder and editor 
of the Panda Paw Dragon Claw blog as well. He does environmental journalism, public opinion. He's really one of the greatest minds out there in terms of understanding how these trends kind of play out on social media and in the public space in China. Uh, you're also on Twitter. Where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, my Twitter handle is TJ Ma, uh, then under slash Beijing. Excellent. Well, we will go ahead and put links to your Twitter, also to the Panda Pod Dragon Claw blog, and as well as Chublik Opinion. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you both. So, Kobus, there we have it. Two really fascinating points of view on this. You and I both will acknowledge our humility in all of this, that we're trying to figure this out as much as everybody else. But I want to get a sense from you after listening to both Wadamaya, also Tianjie as well, listening to what Simon Yu had to say, and all the different kind of views that you've been consuming on social media, in the media, you know, Benjamin Kalu, all of this together, where do you think this is taking us in this China-Africa relationship uh, as it is today? Uh, this is such a difficult question. Um, my, my, my first gut in, um, reaction is that it, it tends to, just, to justify my, 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 my view that the, I think the sides are really not hearing each other. Um, I think they they're really talking past each other, and they you know they I can really gain value on both sides, but they it's not the same value, and they're not they you know they're not really kind of connecting. Um, I think it also it's it's very interesting for me the the kind of role that the China Africa relationship is playing in Africa's place in the world, in the sense that it seems that the China Africa relationship is is increasingly emerging as a space for Africa to exercise. Um, demands or way of of ways of of exercising its agency or you know kind of trying stuff out that it that it can't really in other relationships. Um, at the same time, you know, kind of as as awful as the Guangzhou situation is, um, like we we're speaking in the week of of the, the killing of um, of Ahmad Arbery, uh, the jogger um, in in rural U.S. who was gunned down by by people of uh, you know um, chasing him on uh, with a pickup truck, um, and he's not African, um, but you know the the. The, the pervasiveness of anti-black racism in the, in the United States, in Europe, is just so well proven. It's so savage and so relentless um, that, you know, that, that, that it kind of frustrates me that, that, that the kind of civil society explosion that, that followed the Guangzhou incident isn't being echoed by a, a kind of a similar kind of explosion in relation to the mistreatment of, of African migrants in other places. You know, the, the first place I tend to look at for for examples of mistreatment of African migrants isn't China, it is France, for example, you know, um, and the UK and, and the US. So, so for that, for me, it, it, I find that interesting, you know, because, because it seems to indicate that the China-Africa relationship is creating a space for African civil society to discuss these issues in relation to its foreign partners. And that, that, but it is also interesting and revealing that that discussion isn't really happening in, in relation to, to more traditional partners, um, where I think frequently the, the problem is actually more widespread. What do you think? Well, let me, let me put a theory to you about how I've been kind of interpreting this. And one of my kind of weather veins that I use is, is Twitter. It's not a very reliable weather vein, but it is. it does provide some. And I have a list of every Chinese ambassador and diplomatic mission uh, that go to my Twitter account, E.O. Lander, look under my list and you'll see this one. 
And there are definite themes in the messaging. And you can tell that some of, the, some of this is coordinated, some of it is organic. But one of the things that I've seen in the past week or so is that the, the Chinese have stopped really talking about it. In three or four weeks ago, they were trying to counter the videos. Zhao Lijian in Beijing, who's the foreign ministry spokesman, was responding to statements. They were, CGTN was pushing out all of this video about how happy and everybody is in, in Guangzhou and there's no problems. And now in the past, say, week or two, they've kind of moved on from it. They're now focusing, they're not even talking about COVID aid and donation anymore, which was a big theme. They've now switched to all of these ambassadors, all of these embassies are all pounding the United States. And, and maybe there is a possibility here, and this is something I've been thinking about, is that they're going to walk away from the civil society relationship in Africa. You know, I don't think Xi Jinping loses any sleep whatsoever if he feels that people don't like him. I just, I don't get the sense that that is necessary. They want people to like them, but at the end of the day, they've been dealing with European anger towards, uh, towards China over human rights, Tibet, Xinjiang, the United States over trade, all of this for a very, very long time. And maybe their relationship is going to be one at a political and business level. And, you know, if, if they can't get everybody on board with what they're doing, so what? They'll move on. And they'll just disengage from this conversation altogether. That seems to be kind of what I've been seeing over the past week, that their heart really isn't in it anymore to wage this battle to convince people that there isn't discrimination and racism in, in Guangzhou. If people want to feel that, go ahead and feel it. At the end of the day, we're going to move on and do what's in our interest. By the way, that's kind of how I think the United States would deal with it as well. Trump is not exactly the guy who's going to apologize for anything. So I'm not necessarily sure that this is unique to what China or the United States or what other, this is what big powers kind of do. Vladimir Putin doesn't apologize for everything. He doesn't compromise. I don't think he would lose too much sleep if people didn't like him either. Um, again, please don't misunderstand me. I am not trying to rationalize, excuse, or explain anything here. I'm just trying to think that from the messaging coming out of Beijing, coming out of the embassies, on social media from the Chinese, it seems to be fading a little bit in terms of their enthusiasm for this topic. Do you get the sense that it's possible that maybe they can redefine their relationship with Africa going forward in the post-COVID era, one where it's political, it's military, it's embracing governing elites, it's selling Huawei equipment, selling phones, and at the end of the day, maybe that's where it stops. Um, yes, I think I think these you know these are structuring um, elements of the relationship that that arguably is probably stronger than something like public diplomacy or you know civil society engagement um, or people to people exchange. I mean, we have to keep in mind that that you know China always pushes its people to people exchange you know in 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 talking about its relationship with Africa. So so it might well it might well kind of take a, a, a re-narration of the of the relationship. But yeah, I agree with you that I think the Beijing is probably like you know feel that they've said what they wanted to say and they're moving on and they you know assume that things will blow over in Africa and I think they're probably realistic. I think it probably will blow over in Africa because Africa has a lot of issues that it needs to work out with China around debt and and other other kind of pressing issues around COVID nineteen uh, mitigation and so on where governments would be eager to move on from this issue. What what we will need to see is where the Africans themselves move on from it and then if they don't what what actions they'll take um you know the you know the 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 nigerian um MP that you mentioned that you um, mentioned at the beginning, um, I think it, it'll be he'll be a very interesting figure to keep an eye on um, because I think 
you know, riding this horse of, of outrage um, could is, is, is also a way for African politicians to, to gain personal prominence. So, you know, so there's, so, so, you know, people like him, and I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I don't know anything about him, so I'm not describing any personal motives to him. But, but you know, kind of a, a, prominent, a young prominent MP, this is a very convenient situation for, for someone to gain more prominence. Um, so, and, and that itself could be an engine of, of pushing the issue forward. I think, you know, the best case scenario, I think, would be that there, is, that there would be greater awareness on both sides that this is a, an issue. You know, um, and that that there'll be greater um, wariness of, of of triggering the same kind of crisis again. And I think if if Africa is more um, more proactive in in pushing for its its citizens to be to be treated well in other countries, not only in China but everywhere else, then great. Um, but you know, I'm I'm, I'm yeah, I, I tend to think that it might simply blow over. But it's a risky move for someone like Benjamin Kalu in Nigeria or other politicians, because you've mentioned this point in the past and a number of other scholars have as well, is that a lot of people in African civil society look at their own leaders with the same amount of distrust that they look at the Chinese. And there's a sense, a perception that their leaders are in collusion with the Chinese against them. That is, the Chinese will pay off leaders to get deals done. Those deals don't necessarily benefit the average guy. And so if a politician then comes out to say, you know, uh, you know, on an anti-Chinese platform, a lot of people may look at it cynically and say, well, you are part of the problem. And talk to us a little bit about that cynicism that a lot of people have towards African elites and governing elites from the point of view of Africans. Yeah, that I think that's true. Um, but that has been a, a, a factor. That's been a reality in the China-Africa relationship for for decades, um, and particularly over the last twenty years. Um, so, so that doesn't fundamentally change anything. It just it just heightens and uh, heightens it and adds new kind of images of vocabulary to to hit incumbent politicians with. Um, and I'm sure they will be hit by it. You know, like like any any government, I think that has a that any ruling party that has a strong um, relationship with China is going to be hit with this. I think for for the next few years, um, but I don't know that that would necessarily, you know, fundamentally change the relationship because that has been a structuring, you know, factor in the relationship from the beginning. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. I never like having podcasts that go more than an hour, but this is a special circumstance. We had these two great guests. We really wanted to try and bring a different perspective to the conversation. Uh, this is tough stuff to kind of work through. Uh, we're working through it as well in terms of trying to understand all the permutations of it. And we would love to hear what you think. Send us an email, eric at chinaafricaproject.com or cobus at chinaafricaproject.com. You can also find us on all of our various social media outlets. Uh, we talk about this issue every single day in our daily email newsletter that goes out to our subscribers. So if you're interested in this and you want... Again, a much more detailed, nuanced view of the subject than what you would get, say, in a traditional media outlet or on social media. I highly recommend that you sign up for our newsletter. It's half off for students. Uh, you can find out more at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. So that'll do it for this extra long edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another show that I promise you will be shorter. But once again, thank you so much for joining us and thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Guobas at Stadinsky 
or eric at eorlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.